The word of the Lord. Would you please stand as you're able for our gospel reading? Hear now the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbors as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David by the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son. No one was able to give him an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated as you're able. Well, I'll invite Lydia up. Lydia's gonna preach for us today, and if you are on our midweek announcement, you heard our bittersweet news that Lydia and her family are transitioning uh, to a new season of life uh, out west. Uh, and so this will actually be her last time preaching with us, at least as a member of our community, uh, a resident member. You'll always have a place here. Um, and we'll, at the announcement time, have a, a minute to pray for them as a family and, and send them out. But um, wanted to invite her forward and let her uh, maybe just give a brief update, a brief word about what lies ahead of them before she uh, uh, shares from Matthew's gospel. So Lydia, I'll hand it to you. Yes, this has been kind of a whirlwind last few uh, weeks for our family as we've kind of navigated this huge transition. Um, but it's definitely been bittersweet. Um, I know I don't know a lot of you that well, but Atlanta has been home to our family uh, for the past 12 years. Didn't think we would be here for that long, quite frankly, but um, it's, it's nevertheless become home to us, but even more so Trinity um, has been home to us in so many ways. That was, uh, I think we started coming here about eight years ago and yeah, it's, it, we baptized babies here. This is where our closest friendships have been made. And so, yeah, this is, this is always gonna be home to us in some way. Our families live um, in Chattanooga just a couple hours away. So we'll be back for sure. And, um, but yeah, it's, it's been a great privilege. I just wanted to say to be here um, working on the North side with uh, Trips and doing Gypsy. I've learned a great deal from them and it's just been an honor to walk with all of you through this, um, you know, the, this planting of this, of this North side parish. And I look forward to kind of following this from afar um, since it's crazy times. I'm sure that we're gonna be streaming North side services for a while before we find our own church home in uh, Utah. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, Thank you and pray for us as we sort of navigate this new chapter in our, our lives. Um, it's exciting, but it's also a little bit scary too. So anyway, just wanted to say that before I awkwardly pivot to <laughs> for the text for today. Um, so yes, 
we recently played the game uh, Balderdash with my family. It's our favorite family game. I don't know if you guys have ever played it before, but it's kind of an old game. Uh, it's, it's one in which uh, you get uh, a weird kind of obscure word or uh, an acronym and everybody has to come up with uh, their own definition for it. And they're, they're really strange words. So oftentimes the ones that you come up with are really indistinguishable from the actual definition. They're just that weird. So the point of the game is that you create your own and then someone reads all of the fake ones along with the real one and everyone tries to guess the actual definition. Uh, and so you get really weird words and weird acronyms. And the one that we got uh, the last time we played was C-A-P-A. And of course, nobody knew what the heck that stood for. But it turned out the answer was Closet Accordion Players of America. And of course, no one guessed that. Um, and we also didn't quite believe that that was, that was actually existed. Like, surely this was totally made up. But a quick Google search proved that we were in fact wrong. The Closeted Accordion Players of America does exist, and it was founded by this woman who um, had played accordion all her life and had done, done so in secret, probably because as a child she was mocked severely for this sort of dorky uh, hobby of hers. Uh, until one day, a close friend of hers discovered this uh, secret talent of hers, and she was like, I've known you your whole life. How did I not know that you knew how to play accordion? And she was like, well, I guess I have to kind of come out with it. And thus, the CAPA was born, and she created this sort of support group for other people who had, had this hidden talent. Um, but this all started because her lifelong friend like had never known this big part of her life about her. Anyway, it got me wondering, like, what hidden talents do my friends have that they're going to secretly, you know, whip out one day and surprise us all with. Uh, because, you know, for the most part, you know, if, you had the, if you've had the good fortune of having lifelong friends, you know, you tend to take them for granted and you don't expect to be surprised by them necessarily. Um, we think that we know them well and we know what they're all about. Uh, and I mean, even my husband and I, we've known each other for, I can't remember how many years we decided we know, we've known each other, 22 years, 20, 22 42? <laughs> like, that can't be right. But yeah, we've known each other for over 20 years, and we've been married for 16. And it's like, I know, you know we just don't expect to be surprised. Um, we often send texts with the exact same content down to the punctuation, right? Um, so there's a lot of things that we take for granted with people, and we don't expect to be surprised. And I think we do this even with Jesus, right? Um, I'm speaking mostly here to people who have grown up knowing Jesus their whole life, or at least knowing about Jesus their whole life. But even those of you who are new to the faith or new to your relationship with Jesus, I think that at some point down the road, you're gonna start to get that feeling like, I get this, like I get what Jesus is about, right? Like, you know, at some point, hopefully he's changed your life 180 degrees, he's turned your life upside down. But sooner or later, there's this sort of tendency to like start fashioning Jesus into our own image, right? You know what I mean? Like. Jesus is my co-pilot, as this bumper sticker goes. He's your buddy, you know? Um, he kind of just along with you for the ride of life um, is what it, we a tendency we all have to slip into. Uh, you know, he may have shook your core, you know, with the gospel at one point, but at some point that message of the gospel and Jesus starts to start subtly blending into your other belief systems, right? So your, your personal views, your politics, your general worldview, 
like even your grocery cart etiquette, like, okay, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, so I better like make sure I'm polite and do the right thing and put my grocery cart back in the corral just in case someone's watching. Um, and yet Jesus, if we know him, if we really claim to follow him closely, he can never become this for us, right? He should continue to shock us, to provoke us, to challenge us, not necessarily, definitely not with accordion skills, accordion playing skills, but in his ability to invade those spaces in our hearts and minds uh, that we think we've kind of got nailed down uh, to convict us in ways that we're not anticipating. And I think this is the, the portrait that we get of Jesus in the New Testament, in fact, and it's what I absolutely love about Jesus. So he's constantly zigging when people expect him to zag, not just his enemies, but even his closest friends, his disciples who gave up everything and followed him. Uh, there's times where he goes against the norms and he seems like a total radical. And then the next moment, he's as orthodox and traditional as they come. And he doesn't do this to deliberately frustrate or to be inconsistent, of course, but it's just that his way, that is the way of the kingdom of God, just defies all of our typical ways of being and believing as human beings. Because as humans, we tend to view things very dualistically. They're very black and white, it's this or that. We judge things you know, in very polar opposite ways, you know, like it's beautiful or ugly, that, that sort of thinking. Um, and this is very essential to sort of conducting our life, this way of thinking, right? Like it doesn't, it serves us well as nurses and engineers and try, you know, just practically trying to go about your day making decisions, but it doesn't serve us well in other ways, like thinking about things like eternity or grace or beauty or mystery or, you know, the kingdom of God, in fact. And this is why Jesus taught the kingdom of God in parables, because it really wouldn't make sense if he tried to, dis to explain it directly. Uh, that was the beauty of parables. They exposed that the kingdom of God doesn't work according to our human rubric. And in fact, violates a lot of uh, those senses that those scales are sort of hardwired into us from the very beginning. But we're actually really grateful for that, right? Because the kingdom of God is, is way better than anything we could ask or imagine, even though it sort of violates those sort of, uh, those systems of understanding that are hardwired into our brain. But what does all this have to do with today's text? Well, today's passage is sort of the closing debates um, between Jesus and the religious authorities in Jerusalem. So right after Jesus' triumphal entry um, in chapter 21, where he comes in on the donkey, that sort of kicks off this sort of like uh, sparring that occurs between all of the religious leaders, so the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, pretty much everyone, about a number of topics um, ranging the theological spectrum. So Jesus' authority, uh, taxes, the resurrection, um, and now the law itself is what is at stake. So without taking all the time to go into those texts, I still think it's really important to kind of set the stage for what's kind of gone before, um, how Jesus is betrayed in these stories. So just bear with me because this is Jesus at his most impassioned, right? He goes very Old Testament prophet in, this, in these stories. And, and what I mean by that is if you remember the Old Testament prophets, um, they were kind of like the beat poets of their time, you know, very dramatic gestures. Uh, Jeremiah, you know, is a good example. Um, they're the ones that are saying things like, whoa, all the time, like, get ready. Things are about to get real um, to those in authority. And so that's what Jesus kind of mimics here. 
This is where he has his famous, uh, what I call like his temple, his temple tantrum, right? This is the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. He overturns the tables. And you remember this story, right? He gets upset. Um, they're selling uh, the sacrificial animals in the temple and he overturns the tables. And a lot of times the story gets interpreted as Jesus being this champion of the poor, right? And, I, and don't get me wrong, I do think that Jesus does champion the poor for sure. But a lot of times people think this is about him being upset over the price gouging that's going on in the temple. Um, but I think that actually is not what is the point here. Um, I think otherwise it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense that Jesus uh, kicks out both the buyers and the sellers. He would have just kicked out the sellers, right? But he, he, he kicks out both of them. So I think the clue to understanding what Jesus is getting at here is to look what he quotes at uh, in Jeremiah where the prophet Jeremiah at uh, his point in time when he was speaking is also making a scene at the gates of the temple. So I'll just read that part because we all know the den of robbers thing that Jesus quotes here, but here's the full text. He says, Jeremiah says, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house, the temple, which is called by my name and say, we are safe only to go on doing all of these abominations. Has this house, aka the temple, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You know I too am watching, says the Lord. So that's Jeremiah. This is what Jesus quotes from Jeremiah. And he does it because he's taking direct aim at the temple, this place that was originally intended to be the location where God and the people could meet, where they could be together, has now become a place of corruption. He's saying, you're anything but safe. You think you're safe, but you're, you're clinging to these religious rituals. You're, you're putting all this faith in right action and your heart is a wreck. And so by flipping the tables, he's saying like, this has to go. And Jesus must've looked like a total radical here, right? I mean, he's disrupting the sacrificial system. Like, what is he thinking? And so then he keeps going. Immediately following this, he famously uh, curses the fig tree. Do you remember this? This is kind of a strange story and people are like, what is that all about? Because it's the one miracle that Jesus performs where he's not bringing life, he's actually bringing destruction. And it's to this poor fig tree that's already struggling. It doesn't have any fruit, right? Uh, and I think that the story's impact also gets lost uh, oftentimes. So if you recall in the story, Jesus is hungry and he's in Jerusalem and he sees this poor little barren fig tree and you know, people are like, is he hangry? What, what's going on? And he, said, and he curses it. And his disciples are like, you know, why are you doing this? Like, it's already not doing so hot. Why, why, why take the trouble to curse this thing? And so he tells them, if you have faith, you could tell this mountain to be cast into the sea and it will be done. Kind of a strange response, right? Like, what does that have to do with anything? And oftentimes this gets read as sort of like a comment on the power of prayer, right? Like we can do anything if we have faith, we can move mountains. And not to diminish the power of prayer because obviously much can be accomplished with that. But I do think what gets lost in that interpretation is Jesus's fiery commentary on the temple. So what's helpful to know is that Israel is frequently depicted as a fig tree in the Old Testament. So that coupled with the fact that he's standing next to the temple mount, and he's saying, what the, 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 the connection is pretty unmistakable because he's saying, this is sort of a thinly veiled warning, right? Like what I just did to that fig tree, you too can do to fruitless, corrupt, 
worthless systems, AKA the temple, which we're standing right next to. You can toss those in to the ocean. Again, this is Jesus at his most provocative. He's literally threatening the temple. It's the system. It's what we would call like he's sticking it to the man. That's what we'd call it today. And for very good reason, of course, right? It's corrupt. It's no longer functioning the way it was designed to function. So it's got to go. And he's not beating around the bush about it anymore. And he carries on this radical tirade. He tells multiple parables where the religious leaders feature prominently as the bad guys. And it's pretty obvious um, who they are, how they figure in these stories. It's not hard to sort of read between the lines. But in case they miss the point, he tells them rather bluntly, kind of at the end, this is a quote, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. Again, not subtle. This is gonna get taken away from you. Jesus is very worked up. He's very accusatory. And the religious leaders know that they're in his crosshairs. Okay, yet, yet, in this final question, to conclude the debate at the end of it all, when, in order to test him, as it says at the beginning of this text, a law expert, meaning an expert in Torah, their law, asks him, what is, so, like, What's the greatest law? What is Jesus' response? Well, he says, oh, yeah, it's love, of course. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So, like, after this fiery, provocative display, flipping tables, cursing fig trees, raining down judgment, and all these religious leaders and the temple, he just says, oh, yes, it's, it's Deuteronomy 6. It's Leviticus 19. Like, don't you know your Torah? Law expert, of course you should know this. So like just when they thought he would zig, he zags. And this question almost seems like a little bit of a softball even. Like we don't even get, if you notice, you don't get a reaction from the Pharisees. And after he says the bit about, um, he, he throws them a question about who the, what the Messiah is and the relationship to David. It says they don't ask him any more questions after that. That was it. Um, so that kind of begs the question, what were they expecting him to say exactly, Right. We know they were out to test him and it's very likely that they were expecting him to sort of like kick the law to the curb, like denigrate the Torah, right? Because after all, they'd already accused him of not following Sabbath. Um, they were accused his followers of not following uh, ritual purity law. So they didn't feel like he had the law, held the law in very high regard. But, and he's already disrupted the, temp the sacrificial system and he's attacked the temple. So, you know, surely he's gonna just you know, say, forget the law, right? But Jesus has said many times and from the very beginning that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, right? So his issue has never been with the Pharisees being too detail obsessed with the Torah. It's an, in fact, it's the opposite. They've missed the central values of the Torah. They've gotten so caught up in the nitty gritty that they've neglected not just part of the law, but the greatest, the most important part of the law. Now, what Jesus quotes here in Deuteronomy would have been, um, it's, it's kind of a traditional answer, right? It's, and technically, it's actually not even a command. It's, it's a liturgy. Um, and you may be aware of this. Uh, it's, it's known in Hebrew as the Shema. And faithful Jews back then and, and today still quote it. Uh, you know, they recite it twice a day. It's part of their prayer ritual. And so this is something that they would have known by heart. They would have known this from infancy because when it was given to them, Moses told them specifically of this verse, 
Recite it to your children. Talk about it when you are at home, when you are away, when you lie down, when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. Write them on the doorpost of your uh, house and your gates. And so you may be familiar with this. This is where the mezuzah on the doorpost is um, in Jewish households and the tefillin, the things that you see wrapped around arms and, and heads, those phylacteries. This is where it originated, Deuteronomy 6. And this is where it all started. So Jesus is quoting to them what is kind of obvious on the one hand to them and it exceptionally challenging to them on the other. Because while they knew it, probably better than anything else they knew, did they really know it? Like, had it actually penetrated their heart or had it become so commonplace to them that they just missed it entirely? And I feel like for many of us, that is sort of the danger of Jesus becoming that for us. Because I would venture to say that, you know, it, that this is true for all of us who've grown up in the West, at least, and especially for those of us who grew, who've grown up in um, the culturally Christian South. Like, he's everywhere, right? Um, He's claimed to be anyway. I mean, he's tokenized by politicians. We know, we know this, right? He's just everywhere. I'm gonna quote Dallas Willard one last time, and it's my last Sunday. I know I did it, I did it my last sermon, but it's my last sermon, and so, you know, bear with me. But in his introduction to his book, The Divine Conspiracy, because this is sort of what Dallas Willard really grapples with in his book, is about how people really don't know Jesus that well. But he says, when it comes to Jesus, presumed familiarity has led to unfamiliarity. Unfamiliarity has led to contempt, and contempt has led to profound ignorance. Because I think for many of us, we're so overly familiar with Jesus that we just, we miss him entirely. He fails to surprise us. Like, yeah, yeah, we got it. Love God, love others. But he's not particularly interesting. He's not particularly relevant. Um, he's just sort of this figure vaguely associated with the two major holidays in um, American culture, right? And we think that because he's everywhere that we know him, but we don't. Or that we just simply grafted him onto sort of our pre-existing American values. Um, and, but he fails to provoke us. As I said before, humans tend to think in, very, uh, in a very dualistic manner. And this is something that Jesus transcends. We tend to fall on sort of one side of the other or the other, um, even when it comes to Jesus. So some of us like see Jesus speaking truth to power and we're like, yes. The table flipping Jesus, that's me, absolutely. And there is a time for that, right? But some of us cling to that, that type of Jesus. And then other, other of us see the, uh, the Torah quoting Jesus who, and, and are like, oh, yes, law-abiding Jesus, the basics, don't question it. And they're like, that's my Jesus. Uh, and there's a time for that, right? Uh, and we're usually on one side or the other, and we're typically a little bit suspicious or uncomfortable with the other side, right? It makes us nervous. Um, but Jesus is both. He defies that binary. Um, he's a radical traditionalist. He's an orthodox rebel. He's a flaming moderate, as my, my father-in-law used to say of his own, his own beliefs. Um, and so in closing, I would just exhort you to sort of take an inventory of your relationship with Jesus. Like, does he surprise you? Does he still challenge you? And if he doesn't, like, that may be a sign that, you know, things are not going so well um, because you're never gonna nail, nail down Jesus. Uh, yesterday, I, really, truly yesterday, I started a book that I'm, I'm interested to kind of keep going with. Um, and I, coincidentally, 
it's called Surprised by Jesus Again, Reading the Bible with the Saints. And it's this really neat little book that kind of takes you through um, how the early church fathers interpreted scripture and like each chapter kind of uh, picks a church father and uh, gives them their like, how, how did they interpret scripture? And so in the section on uh, the church father Origin, if you know who Origin is, um, I found this quote about him um, that was really pertinent to today's discussion. And so I'll just close with that. And this is about Origin interpreting scripture. He says, we're far past liberal suggestion that if we that we take scripture seriously, but not literally, or conservatives that it all has to be one-dimensionally true, like a newspaper or a science book. Here, Christ's word has to become true in us. And Origin shows us that to be open to the words of Scripture is to have one's own soul laid bare, operated on, and returned to wholeness. No wonder liberals, conservatives, ancients, and moderns alike are uncomfortable with origin because he points out that Christ is wielding a scalpel and we're the ones under the knife. If you're able, would you please stand as we affirm our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed, 